Father, we thank you so much for being the God that you are. You are our creator. You are our redeemer. You are the one that holds everything in your hand. You spoke a word, and there it was. And with that same word, you uphold all things. Lord, in your compassion, you have formulated a plan, and you did that even before the creation of the world. Lord Jesus, you were the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Because, Lord, you knew that when we were created, when you created us, we were going to sin. We were going to blow it. We were going to rebel against you. And, Lord, today as we go into your word, we're going to see some of these things. And we'll be horror struck. At least, maybe we will. I'm hoping we will be horror struck. And then, Lord, I pray that you help us to see ourselves there. And then, Lord, you will help us to repent. You will help us to love you, to return to you. So, Lord, I pray that you lead us and guide us. And may your Holy Spirit help us to understand and to apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time we were in God's word, a week ago today, remember that we gained insight of the grace and the mercy and the power and the provision of God by the numbers. And the most significant number that we heard and saw in and read in the scripture is two, as in the two tablets. On both of these stones were written the Ten Commandments, the summary statement of the covenant that God wanted to make with his people. The Lord is the divine suzerain, the mighty king, literally set in stone a treaty with his vassals. In this treaty, he declared his love, his faithfulness, and his loyalty to Israel. They were the people upon whom God set his affection. And by Yahweh's initiative and by his own hand, he drew up the treaty and gave the stone tablets to Moses while he met with the Lord on the mountain. However, what was going on at the exact same time he was drawing up that treaty? His vassals were hard at play. He told Moses to go down to his people and deal with them who were in the process of sinning greatly against the Lord. And last week we saw that the Lord showed incredible grace and mercy by way of the tablets. But this week we will explore the aftermath of the great sin of the people. For sin carries very unpleasant consequences. Can we resonate with that? Today we will see how the Lord renders his discipline in the desert. And our passage for today is Deuteronomy 9, 16 through 10, 11. And we're going to go back and forth between that passage and another one. So. You know, it'd be kind of hard to keep up, so you might just want to either stick to the manuscript or just listen. But there's so much here in this passage. And not only this passage, as I mentioned, there's a parallel story that we need to grab hold of. And that's in Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 to 35. Now, we won't get the whole story here in Deuteronomy unless we weave the story in Exodus together with this one. And so I'm going to try my best to do that. And so we're going to hear a lot of scripture being simply read today. The story pulled from Deuteronomy and Exodus is riveting. And so with a rare clarifying comment, I'm just going to let the story speak for itself. Obviously, we won't have time to go into in depth in any of these verses. But before we go through the story and my attempt at weaving it together, let me give us the bottom line up front. If you get nothing else out of the message today, 
then get this. Committing blatant, willful sin as God's people carries with it serious consequences. Now, this is true whether we're talking about Old Testament saints or New Testament saints. Today, we're going to see some severe consequences the Lord laid upon his people in the Old Testament. The less we think that the Lord somehow treats sin more softly in the age of grace versus in the so-called age of law, got news for you. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. Yahweh is not the Old Testament God, while Jesus is the New Testament God. We do not have a saving relationship with the New Testament God as if the Old Testament God is different. The Lord God is the same yesterday and today and forever. The God who called his people by his grace and and saved his people then is the same God who calls us by his grace and saves his people now. The God who completely forgave his people then is the same God who completely forgives his people today. And the holy God who severely disciplined his people then is the same holy God who severely disciplines his people now. The God who hated sin among his people then is the same God who hates sin among his people today. Now Paul makes this clear as he gives us a couple of examples and kind of teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 6 and 11. And he says, Now these things, as in what Israel experienced, as Paul writes some of those and recounts those, took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So with that said, let's get going. As I mentioned, we're going to go through these verses in both Deuteronomy 9, 15 through 10, 11, and also Exodus 32, 15 and 35. And we're going to, we're going to signpost them, highlight as we go back and forth. And then I'm going to tie up the message with a warning to us in what many call the age of grace. And how we as God's people need to deal with sin in our day, in the age of grace, just as seriously as the Lord demanded his people to deal with sin in Moses' day. So let's pick things up in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 15. So I turned, Moses said, and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. Exodus 32. When Joshua, who was halfway up the mountain and accompanied Moses down to the people, when he heard the noise of the people, As they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he, as Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. Deuteronomy. And I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord commanded you. Exodus 32. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin on them? And Aaron said, 
Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know, the people, they're kind of set on evil. But they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Well, where was he? So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me. I threw into the fire. And out came this cat. Just like that. Continuing Exodus 32. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, ultimately the word of the Lord. And on that day, about 3,000 people fell. And Moses said, Today, as in the Levites, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And by the way, that's how the Levites became the priests. It was because of this episode right here. The next day, Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Go back to Deuteronomy. Then I, white space, went upon the top of the mountain, and I lay prostrate before the Lord as before. Forty days and forty nights. Again, I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. And now part of Moses' prayer in Exodus 32. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. To this point, Moses probably broke. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Let's continue Moses' prayer in Deuteronomy. O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us, that's Egypt, say because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people. God said to Moses, they're your people. <laughs> and Moses said, no, God, they're your people. They nobody wants to claim them, right? Your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Deuteronomy 9, verse 20. We hear Moses praying for Aaron as well. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. But I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Now here's Yahweh's response to Moses' prayer. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Personal responsibility here. But go now, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. 
Behold, uh, my angel, I shall send before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Thanks be the Lord for the gift of intercession and his forgiveness. But God wasn't done yet. Let's look at how he further deals with his people in Exodus 32, 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron kind of witnessed popping out of the fire, right? No, the one that Aaron made. And after going into painful detail, after painful detail about all that debacle on Mount Sinai, Moses pressed upon Israel several other reminders, further revealing the condition of the rebellious heart in Deuteronomy 9, 22 and 23. At Taborah also, and at Masa, got some hard names here, and at Kibroth Hatabah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. Now hear Moses' assessment of Israel's heart in verse 24, Deuteronomy 9. You've been rebellious against the Lord since the day I met you. Wow. With Moses' recording of his prayer for the people and Israel hearing the Lord's and Moses' assessment of their rebellious heart, Israel's pastor now brings to the remembrance what happened to them next in Deuteronomy 10. Verses 1 to 5. So now we're going to kind of stick to Deuteronomy here. At that time, the Lord said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. What's he going to do? Reestablish the covenant. Isn't that amazing? And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, Moses, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up on the mountain, and the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, again, the suzerain was establishing the covenant, in the same writing as before, the ten commandments that the Lord spoke to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. And then I turned and came down from the mountain, put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. Another exquisite Example of the Lord's mercy. Would you agree? In Deuteronomy 10, verses 6 through 9, we see some information now related to the tribe of Levi. Again, the Lord set them apart from the rest of Israel to be taking care of all things holy in the camp and in the nation because Levi showed holy zeal in the aftermath of the golden calf. He says the people of Israel journeyed from Biroth Benajakan to Mosorah. There Aaron was the first high priest. He died, and then he was buried, and his son Eleazar ministered in his place. And from there they journeyed to Gudgodah, and from Gudgodah to Jahabatah, a land with brooks of water. Aren't you glad you're not reading this? <laughs> At the time that the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers, as in the land. Because what is his inheritance? It's the Lord. The Lord is Levi's inheritance. Then Deuteronomy 10, verses 10 and 11, 
we have what seems to be a hinge point, a backward-looking and a forward-looking perspective here. First, a backward look. Moses assured the people of God's forgiveness. He says, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days, 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy. Through Moses' prayer, he made atonement for the people. Amazing. And lastly, the Lord gave Moses a forward look, commanding him to tell the people to complete the mission the Lord gave to them. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. What a story. Grace? Most definitely. Mercy? Absolutely. Discipline of the nation with so many of God's people sinning the sin that leads to death? Bingo. So what are we as Christians living in Mechanicsville, Virginia, in the 21st century, do with this passage? The short answer is to face it squarely. We as his people are not to flinch from it. We don't dismiss this episode in Israel's history as a bygone relic from the past where, you know, the Lord was constantly angry with his people back then. But now we can say, I'm sure glad the Lord is kinder and more gentler today than with his people back then. Right? Can we say that? I don't think so. Remember what I mentioned earlier. The things that Israel did and how the Lord dealt with them are included in his inspired word as a warning to us, as a teaching to us. A warning and a teaching that, quite frankly, so many of God's people have forgotten or intentionally ignored. So let me pull from this story some profound lessons, I believe, beginning with the Lord's grace and faithfulness to his people. The two tablets, remember those? As the people were in the middle of committing spiritual adultery against the Lord, he still handed the complete tablets, the writing, to Moses. And what was he doing? He was establishing his covenant of grace and mercy to them as they were sinning. And after his wrath was poured out, resulting thousands of his people sinning the sin that leads to death, the Lord then calls Moses up to him. He says, by the way, when you do, bring two more tablets. I want to write these things again. I want a relationship with my people. Moses, you broke those tablets. I want to do it again. And once again, the Lord knew what he was getting when he chose his people to be in a covenant relationship with him. He knew what he was getting. Nothing surprises him. Now, if the Lord is so full of grace and mercy in that crisis moment at Mount Sinai, hundreds of years before the giving of the Holy Spirit, how much greater is his grace toward us now that the Spirit has written upon our hearts the new covenant, the Torah of God on our lives? In establishing the new covenant, the Lord says this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Paid in full. All of our sin is paid for now and forever. Hallelujah. But we must remember that it always begins with the grace of God. Always. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. The grace of God, it begins. God takes the initiative moves toward us. It's unmerited favor. We can't earn it. True? 
We don't deserve it. And even as Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We come into the kingdom of God by his grace through faith in Jesus. We show our faith in Christ by repentance from sin and by trusting in the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. And when that happens, the Lord declares us to be righteous, right standing with him. But the Lord's declaration that we are righteous is not the goal. Did you know that? It's the beginning. As disciples of the Lord Jesus, King of Kings, we now have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to obey everything he's commanded us. Remember the two characteristics of disciples of Jesus, as he tells us in Matthew 28. The first characteristic is we openly identify with Christ, as he mentioned, through baptism. And then second, we loyally obey the commands of the Lord. We learn how to do it from one another and from his spirit, and then we obey. We obey loyally, not perfectly. We're not allowed to say something like this. You know, the Lord's declared me to be in a right relationship, a right standing with him. And so now that means I can do what I please. What's wrong with that picture? Anybody who really believes this and lives this way either does not know Christ or doesn't know the first thing about righteousness. But what did Israel discover? Yahweh will not tolerate wicked, willful behavior from his people. Not then, not now, not ever. And that's why we must continually remember what he's done for us. His grace, love, and commitment to us. We've got to remember this always in our hearts and minds. We must continually give him thanks for salvation found in Christ alone and from a fresh remembrance of who he is and what he's done, not just for everybody, but for you and for me. We then pledge allegiance to him. We seek to obey him, for obedience to his ways is the way, because he described it and he defined it, is the way that we show him what? That we love him. You love the Lord this morning? Are you showing it by obedience? Heartfelt obedience, not just by rote. So the second lesson we can learn here is the blessing and need for zeal-filled servants who honor the Lord regardless. Remember how Moses made the general call. Everybody was having a fit for themselves. Moses comes down and says, who's on the Lord's side? And then the men from Levi answered the call. Now, they did not know ahead of time what on the Lord's side would look like, did they? Moses called out. They came. Did they know they were going to have to do? Probably not. But they found out in a hurry, didn't they? And they obeyed the word of the Lord as spoken through Moses. They strapped on their sword and they killed 3,000 of their fellow Israelites because of the sin of idolatry. Pretty serious stuff, you think? But why the Levites? And why such drastic action? Well, the simple answer is why the Levites and nobody else, at least not indicated, is fairly simple. The Levites volunteered. 
They were just ordinary people. God did not, as it were, direct them through an audible voice. Moses did not single them out. They were no one special, just men who were full of zeal for the honor of the Lord. They weren't in any, in any official position. They were just lay, lay people. Perhaps Levites didn't participate in the worship of the calf. Or perhaps they were cut to the heart when Moses made the call. Either way, they reported for duty. And filled with zeal, they took drastic measures. Now, there was a reason for Moses' call to enact such severe discipline in the desert. Because the pagans were watching all of this. In Exodus 32, 25, remember Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose. What are we talking about? They just went wild, just, just rebelled against authority. And it was to the derision, literally to the mockery, the disgrace, the dishonor displayed before their enemies. Egypt was watching the reputation of Yahweh as judged by the behavior of his people, by the world, is at stake here. In other words, how God's people show themselves and how we show ourselves to the world has an effect on how people see the Lord. No pressure. Right, And judging by the emphasis of the Lord through this inspired account of his holiness and dealing with the sin of his people, especially in our day, how we need to pay attention to personal and church-wide holiness now more than ever before. Now, I'm not talking about methods here, okay? We're not talking about <laughs> what, the, what the Levites did. You know, I'm not advocating we go around and we call out, who's on the Lord's side? Strap on your semi-automatics and show sinning saints the holiness of God. You know, I'm not talking about that. But what I am talking about is what this passage talks about. Because the pagans are watching. And we as God's people need to zealously deal with sin in our midst. See, we don't normally deal with sin in our midst, but we tell those guys, you know, you're sinners. We need to deal with sin in our midst. I'm not talking about blasting one another. I'm talking about lovingly, but aggressively dealing with sin. But we need to identify sin as Scripture identifies it. Not as the world does, not even how we feel. I may have a hurt feeling. Why? Because my brother came to me with a sincere, you know, rebuke. And if I got hurt feelings, I'm, I'm tended because of what the world tells me to do. I'm tend to push back saying, you sinned against me. Wrong answer. He was trying to help me. See, sin is a clear, clear transgression of God's word. Clear transgression. It's as if God has drawn a line in the moral sand of our fellowship that says, don't cross. And somebody says, I think I will. So they put their foot on there. Why? Because I can. Because I want to. Willful violation of God's revealed word. And that's when the body comes together. And the world looks at this. Worldly Christians look at this. Or people who claim to be Christians who are not. They say, oh, you're judging them. No, we're helping them. See, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 18 laid it out for us. We don't got to figure it out. We don't have to wonder what to do here. But we need to apply Nike theology. And what is that? Just do it. How many of us are going to do it? 
Notice the steps. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, again, a blatant violation of Scripture, you are to go to him, lovingly confront him, prayerfully confront him, maybe with tears even, confront him. If he repents, all well and good. If he does not repent, go away, come back later. If, and you continue the process only until such time as the transgressor sends a message loud and clear, I will not repent. That's step one. Step two is bring along a couple others with you. But you continue the process. You go to that person, kind of sanctify peer pressure here. You know, get them to understand, listen, you've sinned. And you keep going back until such time as the transgressor gives a clear indication. I will not repent. And then what happens? Bring it to the church. In our case, to the cat, to the leadership. And tearfully, painfully, should he not repent, should she not repent, we need to tell the transgressor, out you go. See, sin belongs out there. It doesn't belong in here among God's people. Unrepentant sin belongs in the realm of darkness. It does not belong in the realm of the brothers and sisters in the kingdom of light. Of course, should the brother, should the sister repent, what do we do? Open back up, allow them to come in. But until they do, no, sin belongs out there, not amongst God's holy people. So the first lesson, it begins with the grace of God, always the grace of God. And the second lesson, we all need to be filled with zeal for the honor of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. Third lesson, what we can learn from this horrendous story today is the absolute indispensability of prayer. In this whole sordid episode, what part did prayer play in the life of Moses? Pretty obvious, isn't it? 80 days. No food, no water. That's a miracle. Moses prayed for the people. Moses said, God, listen to me. Again and again he said this. He relented. What does that mean? God changed his mind about destroying the people because of Moses' intercession, his prayer. And he did not destroy Aaron as well, by the way. Now we read about what Moses did, how he interacted with Yahweh. What a privilege. I'll put that as a question mark, not only for myself, but for all of us here. Because I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. And that guilt, that sin is called prayerlessness. Or even worse, as some godly man put it, only a little prayer. See, in his perspective, prayerlessness is not as bad as only a little prayer. Because what happens is when we pray just a little, we're salving our soul. And we're thinking, hey, listen, I'm praying a little bit, so I'm good. I'm good. See, I've, I've had my prayer time for today. And I can go off and do what I want. My brothers and sisters, I'm just as guilty as anybody else. Why do we neglect this all-powerful avenue to the king of the universe? Why do we do that? The Lord Jesus set the parameters about prayer. He gave us the invitation. He gave us the command. And I'm not going to say he begs us to, but he really wants us to come to pray. If we meet the parameters, can you imagine what can open up? 
Let me give you the two command, the two, just two of many parameters that the Lord outlines in the invitations and the reminders and the command to pray. And both of these are taken from the pen of John the Apostle. The first one is found in John 14, 13 and 14. He says, If you ask anything in my name, this I will do. Many people stop right there, but now look at the caveat. Look at the at the, the parameter that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what's the parameter? Whatever brings glory to the Father through Jesus. That's the parameter. We can ask anything within those boundaries. But let's not forget a second parameter. This is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. That's a good thing, but let's keep reading. Why? Because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. If we're walking in sin, can we ever expect God to answer our prayer? Absolutely not. If we are doing things that displease the Lord, can we expect God to answer our prayer? No. God may by his grace, by his mercy, but we can't expect him to do it. So keeping his commands, doing what pleases him, asking for what brings glory to the Father through the Son, meet these things and it's answered. Isn't it amazing? The God of the universe will answer our prayers. However, not on our timetable. Not according to the way we do it. Let's allow the Lord to dictate the when and the how. See, that's his realm. Our job is to pray aright. And Moses prayed aright, and the Lord heard him. What amazing thing prayer is, isn't it? And what an amazing God to whom we pray. See, Moses understood Yahweh is the king of the universe, and he spent a lot of time in his presence. What about you and me? Our God is big. He invites us to pray. Is there any greater privilege than that? And finally, fourth lesson. It seems as though the Lord kind of listened in on the message last week we talked about. Because it appears he employs the fast and press principle. I kind of like that. In Deuteronomy 10.10, we find these things. Confession and forgiveness. See, Moses assured the people that Yahweh had forgiven them, that he would not destroy them. That's the fast part. Not on God's part, obviously, but on Moses' part, upon the people's part. Moses confessed the sin of the people, and God forgave them. Again, that's the fast part. Then in verse 11, notice how the sin, once dealt with, was put behind the Lord's back, so to speak. Once forgiveness was granted, then what? It was now time to move on and press on with the fulfillment of the mission God called Israel to do. Forgiveness behind the back, now press on. Fast and press. That's the principle. Not much you, but I figure if the fast and press is good enough for Moses and Israel, it ought to be good enough for you and me too. True? And so again, 1 John 1 9. We fast, as in confess our sins with the attitude of repentance. And then once forgiven, we press on, forgetting what lies behind, even the confession that we just did. And as we finish the message for today, let's hear Paul's testimony to give us encouragement to press on. 
when Paul wrote his joy-filled letter to the Philippians, as most of us know, where was he? He was in prison under house arrest in Rome. But it wasn't just like any ordinary prison, the state providing three hots and a cot and all that kind of stuff. He had to pay for his own jail cells. He was a political prisoner in dire straits. He literally needed to pay for his own jail cell. But guess what? He had no money. He was a prisoner. He couldn't get a job. He was waiting to get his day to stand before Nero, who didn't like Christians very much at all. And so with that stage set, let's hear Paul's determination to let nothing get in the way of his goal. And for Paul, he had exactly one goal in life, and that was to know Christ. Here's his testimony, Philippians 3, 7 to 14. If you want to turn there, great. If not, then then you can just listen. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, he had many gains. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. We know what that word means, don't we? It's that stinky stuff. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Sharing his sufferings. Our brothers and sisters in mass are doing that as we speak. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, the righteous resurrection, because we're all going to be resurrected. Paul continues, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's his testimony. What's yours? What's mine? See, for Paul, the only thing that mattered was Christ. What about you? By his grace, full of zeal for his honor, spending ourselves poured out in prayer, indeed, praying without ceasing. And when we sin, we fess and press on to accomplish his will for us. So don't let what happened on Israel with Mount Sinai fall on deaf ears. Let's put these things into practice to the glory and the honor of our Lord. Well, let's uh, pray, shall we? Our God and Father, you are so gracious. You are so kind. You are patient. You are love. But you are holy. I shouldn't even say but. And you are holy. And you are wrathful. And you are pure, beyond pure. And so much more, Lord. We could we could spend from now to eternity just listing your attributes. Lord, we thank you so much that you do not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we heard this tale, 
not just a tale as made up. This is an episode in Israel history, how you dealt with sin, blatant, unrepentant sin, and you caught them by surprise, and you brought them up, and you dealt with them severely. Lord, in our day, I don't know how you're going to deal with your church going forward. But Lord, it seems like right now you're in the middle of some shaking. And I pray for us here, Grace United, Lord, that, that we would withstand the shaking. That, Lord, everything that, that would, would come um, crashing down upon us, Lord, that we would stand upon the foundation, the rock-solid foundation of Christ. Lord, may we follow Paul's example. May we have his testimony to make it our own that we want one thing and one thing only, that's to know you, Lord Jesus, and to share in the fellowship of your sufferings that we might become like you. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead us. God, is protect us. Protect us from ourselves, Lord. Protect us from others. Protect us from the enemy. Help us, Lord, to stand zeal-filled for your honor, for your glory. Now, Father, I thank you for this time that we can we can continue to give you worship in our giving and also in our singing. Help us, Lord, to do these things as an act of worship because you alone deserve it because you're so worthy of it. In Jesus' name.